BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, July 14th starts now. On today's show, as we do every Friday, Ben has a little thing called Oh What a Week, bringing in a special guest to talk the top stories. This week, Adolfo Mondragon, attorney at law. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what's going on this weekend. It's all at ChicagoReader.com. And find Ben Jarofsky there too. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-B as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Jackie Brown Friday, and here's why. Well, of course, it's over a week Friday, because every Friday we review things that happen in the week. Although we're kind of liberal in terms of things that happen in the week. You know what I mean? Have you ever noticed that about the Ben Jarofsky show? We're kind of liberal. You know, we're not like a literal minded. We go, this happened close enough to the last week. Anyway, uh, distinguished attorney Adolfo Mondragon, very opinionated young man, is uh, my guest. We'll be taking a deep dive on all kinds of things. But let me just tell you why I called it Jackie Brown Friday. That's because over the last two days, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I watched the Quentin Tarantino movie, Jackie Brown, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's definitely in the top three. At any given moment, it could be number one. I like it for many, many, many reasons. Uh, which I can go on and on and on talking about because I can obsessively talk about QT uh, and Jackie Brown forever and ever, as anybody knows. Uh, but um, I think that the predominant reason uh, is the brilliant acting by the big three, and that's in that movie, Robert Forster, Samuel Jackson, and, of course, the incomparable Pamela Greer, who I just idolized in the 70s. Uh, and it was just a triumphant return to the big screen for Pamela Greer. I still can't believe she was not nominated for an Oscar. What a sham that she was not nominated for an Oscar because that was just a great performance she gives. And it's just a testament to a strong, powerful woman who's just completely overwhelmed. She's like the low person on the totem pole in this movie. Everyone has got more power than she does that she has to deal with. And she plays one against the other brilliantly, like a chess master, a game of chess. She out, outwits them all. And she, I mean, it's got a, she walks away the champ. And it's brilliant how she does it. And it's just a great performance by uh, Pamela Greer. Wonderful soundtrack. Great scenes. Robert De Niro is brilliant in this movie. I forgot how great he is in this movie as this stoner ex-con who's a little dim-witted. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing thinking about it. It took me two days to watch it. It's about, it's kind of a long movie. And I've been influenced by streaming. I got to admit, you know, where they drop the, the shows into like half hour uh, series that you can watch like two in a night maybe and uh you, you, uh you zap through it in about a week or so anyway so i watched it in two nights 
So absolutely brilliant. Loved it to death. But here's the problem. At the outset of that movie, right as the credits are rolling, it says producer Harvey Weinstein. I'm like, you all know who Harvey Weinstein is. This dude is like bad news, like a rapist, a man who used his power as a producer to coerce women into having sex with him, then intimidated the entire motion picture industry to look the other way and shut up. Like, if the Northwestern hazing racism scandal is indicative of so much that's wrong with culture and our society, and we will be discussing that at some point in the show, then Harvey Weinstein's, the intimidation, the power, and how he used it in Hollywood to coerce so many powerful people into silence. And they all knew what was going on. Don't tell me you didn't know, Hollywood, what was going on. Because you had jokes about it. So you knew what was going on. And all of a sudden, one day, you're outraged. I'm outraged. And now he's in uh, prison. Uh, I, I don't know if he'll ever get out. He may die in prison for all I know. But there his name is. And it was a realization to me one more time how powerful and influential he was and how he's connected to so many movies I love. And this conflict I feel between loving this movie and realizing it was produced by a rapist. It would be the sort of the same uh, conflict that MAGA would have when they think about how they pledge their allegiance to a cult that's led by a rapist, Donald Trump. I'm just saying, MAGA. MAGA always hates it when you point that stuff out. <laughs> they look the other way. They got all these evangelicals for Donald Trump, a rapist. Okay, sexual assaultist. Then MAGA gets all lawyer-like. Well, Ben, you know, he was, uh, it was only sexual assault when the jury was came down to it. I love when MAGA goes lawyer-like on you, you know? Just fine points, nuances, and distinctions as they protect a notorious liar. Anyway, back to Harvey Weinstein. So, you know, I always feel like I got to admit, like a little guilt, like somehow or other, I'm complicit in this, even though I had nothing to do with the ladies. I've never met Harvey Weinstein. Okay. I am not privy to the powers that be in Hollywood. But, you know, it's like I love his, these movies with his name on it. Aren't I kind of like, Part of it all, you know what I mean? And then I read, by chance, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's column today. You guys know I'm a big fan of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the great basketball legend, uh, writes a uh, weekly newsletter, which I urge everybody to subscribe to. Very thoughtful guy. I consider him a public intellectual. And um, so it, by, by chance, he's dealing with the issue of guilt uh, in, in a and a portion of the essay today uh, and where he uh, he's, he's actually talking about the effort by Magum uh, to rewrite history. Uh, and <laughs> it's so twisted and weird what Mag is doing, man. Uh, and uh, so essentially take like any mentions to racism, uh, slavery, uh, Jim Crow, uh, take it off the books or rewrite it in such a way like the white guys look good. That's that's not, that's not easy, man. Try to figure out a way to rewrite slavery, the history of slavery, so white people look good. MAGA's not hard to work at it right now. Uh, they were really nice to the slaves. If the slaves asked, they could get dessert. Two heapings of dessert. Really weird, perverse MAGA that you would try to do this. 
instead of just like confronting the past and trying to think about how it influences where we are. Anyway, so uh, uh, he uh, this is what Kareem wrote. Uh, the professed reasoning behind the acid washing of history is that whites shouldn't feel guilty about the sins of the past. However, history should induce guilt because guilt, the blend of conscience and compassion, is the learning emotion. That's why guilt is the main teaching tool of parents and religion. Guilt is the byproduct of empathy. Schools don't teach guilt, they teach history. And with that comes a mixture of guilt and empathy. You can tell someone what good and evil is, but they don't truly understand it and embrace it unless they feel empathy for the victims of evil. You know what? I read that. I go, that is so true. That is so true. And so it's not, you know what? Don't erase Harvey Weinstein's name from that movie. Keep Harvey Weinstein's name on that movie. Let the world know that as good as this movie is, or as much as I like it, it was produced by a Hollywood that was so cowardly, so worried about each individual career of somebody in it, so afraid to speak out that they looked the other way, including QT. He was looking the other way, too. And I love you dearly. Or I love his movies. I don't know the man at all. Love your movies very much, Quentin Tarantino. Well, with the exception of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Dolphos laughing. He kind of likes Reservoir Dogs. Even QT. Look the other way. They're all looking the other way. So I think, you know what? In a weird way, I can now appreciate the fact that that name is at the start of Jackie Brown, one of my favorite movies of all time, as a reminder. Can't run away from history. History is there. We can learn from it, but we shouldn't try to erase it. All right. Without further ado, Adolfo Mandragons, I'm going to bring him on. He's been sitting by patiently. Uh, Adolfo, do you agree or disagree with the themes I raised in my opening remarks? First of all, welcome to the show, young man. Thanks. Uh, It's been a while. Distinguished attorney uh, and proud graduate of Yale. We'll be getting into that in a little while. Um, But uh, you're a huge uh, Quentin Tarantino fan. Once we even saw Jackie Brown together, we went to a movie, went to University of Chicago. Remember? We saw Jackie Brown at the University of Chicago. Doc Films. Yes. Uh, um, God, I loved it. I I think it was the first time I ever saw it on the big screen. Anyway, uh, your thoughts about Harvey Weinstein's connection to Jackie Brown. Yeah, it's always tough to separate the, like, for example, the artists from the works that they produce. Uh, in this case, it wasn't like he was part of the movie or whatever, but he produced it and his name was bold. You know, it's you can't miss it, right? Like you couldn't miss it uh, when you viewed it. Um, and it's tough. It's just like, do you listen to R. Kelly songs knowing what he did? How about Michael Jackson? Do you have a problem with Pablo Picasso's works? Because he was, you know, such a such a horrible person to women and uh or to his wives at least and girlfriends and uh you know so it's 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 kind of difficult uh, the same token there is i think a, there are certain circumstances where perhaps we shouldn't we should get rid of uh some of these names and statutes for example like look at the whole controversy with the naming of the uh the military bases right 
I think we should erase some of those names from the military races and take and and use that to honor somebody who deserves honoring. Uh, you know, I'm Mexican, and uh, Mexican people are the byproduct of uh, colonization and a conquest, and it's a very difficult thing. But in Mexico, there's a in Mexico City, there's a plaque in one of um, the central areas that uh, a plaza called the the Plaza of the Three Cultures. The uh, the pre-Columbian, the colonial, and the modern Mexico, and it says in there something that a Mexican, uh, you know, that the Mexican people are that the conquest was a the painful birth of a new nation, a painful birth, right? And so sometimes you want to be reminded of that pain, like uh, like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said in his uh, in his essay, and sometimes. Uh, I think it's appropriate to, you know, erase some of these names. Like I personally, for example, Cortez, you know, you can't erase what he did in history. And by some uh, measure, some of the things that he did, you could probably admire as bold actions, et cetera. But I don't ever want, and even in Mexico City, to be a statute of, of, uh, of Cortez somewhere, you know. And um, so there's times and places where, some of these things should be erased and there are circumstances where there should be painful reminders because uh, we need that pain and we need that memory to make us better. Yeah. Right. So that's kind that's, of how I feel about it. That's a good point. Now, I just want to uh, note the distinction uh, between uh, like struggling with whether you the reminder of an atrocity uh, so that we we never forget the atrocity. Uh, that it's a a reminder that what can happen uh, if society loses control of itself. So uh, that's a similar, essentially what I'm talking about when I see Harvey Weinstein's name on Jackie Brown. And then there's defense of a statue, like a Robert Lee statue, or the name of a fort, like Fort Bragg, like to defend the person. <laughs> whoa and that's mega i'm like mega calm down you're defending slavery you know what right, i'm saying right. it, it, it's like rob robert e lee is like they want they fight the taking down a robert e lee statue who who is uh the, the leader of the confederate army uh they fight to take the taking down that statue because it's like you're denying us our past and our traditions and our history and our heroes. I'm like, dude, your hero was a guy who was fighting right. slavery. Just pause and think about that, you know? Right. And there's a distinction between something being a painful reminder and something that is honoring the atrocity, right? And so that's why there's a time and place to er to take down statutes, to erase names from um you know, because you're not going to erase them from history, but at least erase them because you're not honoring them. But sometimes it's okay to have uh, things stand as they will because they are the painful reminder. You're not honoring, honoring or venerating the individual Harvey Weinstein in your case of the movie. You're 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 reminding that as good as this movie is, and it's a great example of you know what Hollywood can produce that the person who produced this movie was a horrible human being yes, and was, was part of a system was part of a system that was very faulty. And, and it's, and it's a weird reminder that even out of bad things, out of bad situations, certain good things, but those don't rationalize the actual evil things that were, that happened during that time. And 
it is such a contradiction because the movie Jackie Brown, as I got finished saying, is all about how Pamela Greer is an empowered woman who does not accept the horrible position she's been put in. And she brilliantly plays one person against another and, and emerges on top. And it's produced by an individual who used his power to coerce sex from women. And they were powerless. It's so twisted and weird, Adolfo, in many ways, uh, that uh, the movie itself is a is like a refuta- refuting the actual man who produced it. Right. It's such a dichotomy. I mean, it's it's crazy. And and that maybe that makes it more powerful too. the fact that if you don't erase his name from it, the fact that it is a dichotomy actually makes it even more resonant. It makes it resonate more with uh, with everyone. Yeah, it is a dichotomy. And yeah, you can't you can't erase his name. I hope they never erase his name from that movie. I need to be reminded when I'm loving that movie. By the way, it's such a great flick. That's just me talking. All no, right, yeah, I, I agree 100. percent That that is probably my favorite. Tarantino film. And in fact, uh, we saw. I remember the night. It was it was a really cold night. We uh, we watched it on the big screen at the University of Chicago uh, Student Union, and we stood outside and talked about it in the freezing cold. We were so into the, and I had already seen it many times, right. three times. You had seen it a couple times, or maybe once. I don't know. Right. And of just, course, uh, you know, you can't. Pam Greer, God, she looks so good in that movie. I mean, aside from being a brilliant actress, but you know me, I'm like scoping out. She's yeah, smoking. I, and I know you had a big old crush on her when you were when you were growing up, right? Yes, I did. Uh, let's not talk about my crush on Pam Greer. Let's move on. Uh, and uh, so, all right. Uh, first thing on the uh, on our list to talk about uh, today's story. I talked about it briefly yesterday. This will be an ongoing topic in the city of Chicago, of course, city of Chicago right now. Uh, as it always is, is just uh, grappling with a serious problem of crime, uh, shootings every day. Uh, there's uh, accounts in the newspaper of shootings, holdups, carjackings, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, it was a predominant theme and in uh, the violence in Chicago, the crime in Chicago, in the mayoral election. Um, it was such a predominant theme that the lakefront liberals uh, on the north side of Chicago actually voted for uh, a MAGA sympathizer. Uh, it won't let you forget that lakefront liberals. Uh, so it's obviously really much a very important topics on everyone's mind. Uh, and as such, uh, Brandon Johnson is going to have to determine mayor Brandon Johnson, who the next police chief is. And that, that this, uh, decision has been giving a lot of significance because it's as though that one person, that one man, and it is a man cause it's going to be the three finalists are men, uh, will like what? Eradicate crime in Chicago. What an impossible task we're charging uh, with this person. But symbolically, it's a very important position. So we have a system, a very elaborate system, Adolfo, of uh, choosing who the police chief will be or the police superintendent, as they say in Chicago. Uh, And uh, there's a commission that comes up with names. Uh, They go through a whole process. They had it to six. And then yesterday they announced the final three. Uh, and the final three are, I'll just name their names. They probably will mean uh, uh, nothing to you uh, folks, just unless you're like a real police geek. Uh, Sean Barnes, uh, Angel Novales, and Larry Snelling. Uh, and I, um, 
sent the article for homework uh, to Adolfo to read and absorb. And he dutifully did that. Thank you, Adolfo. Uh, you get an A for effort. Um, <laughs> so uh, essentially, there one is an insider, one is an outsider, and another is a reformer. That's how they're being built. Uh, break it down in your mind. Who would you choose if you were Mayor Adolfo instead of Ben's guest, Adolfo? Well, I guess they all have their own strengths. Um, but, you know, for Chicago, I think, you know, I'm a civil libertarian. I'm a civil rights attorney. So I definitely think that you have to pick a candidate that is going to be strong on constitutional policing because um, we can't go back to a city of Chicago that pays, that first of all has police officers that are, you know, uh, using excessive force. And then not only having the consequences of marring relations with your, your communities, uh, but also then having to fork over millions of dollars of city money, taxpayer money, when all of this comes to light and then there's lawsuits against the city for for all of this wrongdoing. And it's just like, I don't know what other city outside of Chicago has as many lawsuits and, and settlement uh, payouts because of the, the vast amount of uh, excessive force that is is being used. So one, you definitely need a candidate that's strong with that. And there's definitely one there that the middle candidate, uh, the Latino, I think. Mm -hmm. Is he Latino? Yeah. Yes. Um, that, you know, has been overseeing all of the uh, federal consent decree stuff reform that has happened. So you definitely need that aspect of it. But at the same time, uh, you need someone who is going to be able to change the culture from within because they are trusted by their own. And, you know, the blue line is a very difficult thing to um, to deal with. Uh, and so the first candidate is the one that his major strength is the fact that he is uh, beloved by the, um, the 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 rank and file. And 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 that's badly needed because. As you may say, whatever, that, that the police are you know, uh, boohooing them for, for thumbs and that they're the ones who are victimized by all of this stuff. And it's, they're not doing anything wrong. And there's just only a few bad apples, et cetera. And that may be true. I might take that position myself that like, look, you know, they're crying, you know, when they shouldn't be crying about anything, it's, it's their fault. So because morale is so low, you, you definitely need somebody who is going to, gain the trust of the rank and file in order for in order for this person to implement all of the constitutional policing reforms that have to be made because one thing if you're strong with the with the reform side but you can't sell it you can't get your workforce to go with it then it's all in vain so i think based on that and then you have the outside the outside already is a big negative this situation, there might be other situations and other police forces where you need an outsider, right, to to come and stuff. But we've had enough outsiders anyway. So I think based on these three candidates, it's it's got to be the one for me, the one that has the um, the trust of the rank and file, and also has some experience with the constitutional policing. Although he, they do, do note in the story that he had 
early in his career in the 90s, like 93, he had a complaint about uh, excessive force of his own. But that might actually be a good thing because it happened so long ago on board with constitutional policing that it's something personal that he could take and see how, you know, the errors of his way and they can't go back. Yeah. Hey, to I'm sorry. Three policing, they have to be ahead of the you Adolfo. Know, I'm sorry. Everyone else and being, you know, into the new reforms. Uh, uh, so I would go with that, with that candidate, the first candidate. So you, uh, you're endorsing Larry Snelling is his name. Uh, he is currently the Chicago Police uh, Department's chief of counterterrorism. Uh, and I'm reading from the Sun-Times. is widely beloved by the rank and file. And he designed the latest version of the police department's training model on use of force. Uh, Larry Snelling is his name. He's a black man. Uh, I, uh, I Let's talk about the outsider thing, man. And I am an outsider. Uh, I, am, I, I point this out constantly. I am not. Uh, from Chicago, unlike uh, Adolfo, born and raised in Chicago. Uh, and um, I believe I've known Chicagoans really well because I studied you, but I'm definitely an outsider. And I'm reminded of that if pretty much wherever I go, you're not from me. Where, you know, what parish are you from, Ben? Uh, which is a question. I <laughs> Get the uh, Well, you know, a radical thought. I am not Catholic. Did you? Whoa, mind blown. So what is with Chicagoans and outsiders? Let's, I need your help on this one, uh, Dolfo. Is it the sense of inadequacy that Chicagoans have that they're like, they've got this bizarre, like, chip on their shoulder regarding someone that you're not a Chicagoan? <laughs> I don't get it, man. I look at the people who are from Chicago. Uh, most of you guys I wouldn't want running the police department. I guess just breaking it to you, Chicago. Help me out, Adolfo. Why do Chicagoans have this attitude about outsiders? Like they're somehow different uh, than Chicagoans. I don't know. I think, I guess I would have to say it's because Chicago is not an international city like a New York is. New York, New Yorkers, although there's clearly people who've been in New York and uh, New York City for generations, is a constantly, it's a city that constantly accepts people from outside. And so they're used to having people, you know, it's, it reminds me, what was that Robin Williams movie, Moscow on the Hudson? Yeah. Remember that movie? Yeah. And the, yeah, running, and, that, and the yeah. running joke there of the movie was, it was directed by, uh, I forgot the director's name, but he was an immigrant. And the running joke is that New York City is just full of immigrants. Everyone that the Robin Williams character met was an immigrant. His girlfriend was like South American. All of his neighbors were from different places. And it's like, so New York City is a city that, for example, that doesn't have that complex because, you know, it may be a place like Miami too. You know, I haven't been to Miami. I don't know Miami very well, but from what I do know is that it's the gateway in particular to uh, people from and trade and economy from uh, Latin America and South America in particular. And so they have an international feel. So they probably don't, I wouldn't guess they don't have that kind of complex, but Chicago is a little closed environment. And although it is a place that has welcomed immigrants over generations, it's one of those places that uh, gets groups at a time, right? Like waves of immigration. And then they, uh, you know, thrive in the city and evolve, but it's not a place that is constantly receiving places from diverse areas, not just waves of, 
you know, just Mexicans or at some point here in Chicago, Polish and Irish and German. But it's it's a city that is constantly accepting people from Europe and from the Middle East and from Latin America and all over the place and different religions. And so I think that that's probably the aspect. We're just we're not an international city. Yeah. I'll, I'll just a brief correction. Uh, Mos Moscow on the Hudson was directed by Paul Mazursky, uh, who was born and raised in New York City. His grandfather came from the Ukraine, uh, went, but uh, Mazursky was very much uh, not an immigrant, but point well taken. Uh, good flick, by the way. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Reminded me of that one. And I, I also want to you're right. I think you're right. I think that's that that's that second city status thing that that plagues Chicago. Uh, we're very insular thinking. But then I have to point out while uh, you were talking, I was thinking, you know, Chicago did accept an outsider as police chief. Chicagoans love Big Mac. Remember Big Mac? Gary McCarthy? <laughs> he even gave him a nickname. Big Mac. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Mac. Well, I think, I think a certain segment of Chicago loved Big Mac because Big Mac found his ass on on the street as soon as he started fucking up, you know, so um, I think it was that whole MAGA crew that loved the, the uh, Chicago Big version Mac. of MAGA. Yeah, Big Mac yeah. couldn't translate that love into votes for mayor, that's for sure. Alright, just so uh, yeah. everybody know, Gary Big Mac McCarthy came to Chicago of Rahm Emanuel. Yes. Speaking of mistakes you have made, Chicago, when you elected him as your mayor, uh, I will not re-engage Adolfo in a discussion of that because uh, uh, we voted for different candidates. Uh, but uh, Rahm Emanuel brought Big Mac uh, in. Remember, the national. That was like a classic Rahm thing. We're going to have a national search for a police chief and the best. I will select the best for Chicago. So that was like Rahm was trying to fight that second city status. You know what I'm saying? Like we're a world class. He was going the op. He was taking your lesson. Right. To heart, we're gonna we're gonna look throughout the whole world, and we're gonna take right. the best person. And, and the in best fact, person Big, Mac Big Mac came from uh, New Jersey and New and the New York area, right? That so. is correct, Senator Newark. Yes, <laughs> he got Newark and New York. I forget where he he was the police chief at Newark. I want to say, but he came from New. York. I can't remember. Sorry, Big Mac, I forgot. But you're from Newark and New York, so they brought in Big Mac, and uh, he, you're right. Chicago loved him until they didn't. And of course, Big Mac was uh, part of the, uh, the administration that uh, concealed the, uh, uh, the LaCroix McDonald video that showed police shooting LaCroix McDonald. Big Mac later said that uh, he only did it. It was Rom. He wanted to release it or he would have released it, but Rom wouldn't let him. Uh, so I don't know. It's weird. Let Rom and Big Mac fight that out. But yes, Chicago loved Big Mac until they didn't. All right. I, uh, I would probably go uh, with Snelling as well, uh, and um, for the point that you made, uh, that uh, if you're going to bring everybody together uh, to uh, reimagining police, policing in Chicago, and the role of police in Chicago, uh, it might be a good idea to have somebody in charge of the police department who is respected by the rank and file, as opposed to someone that they cannot stand for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they could not stand uh, the predecessor, David Brown from Dallas. So um, I would probably go uh, with Snelling as well. Uh, all right. Uh, the other thing on my mind uh, for the last two weeks, really affirmative action, the affirmative action decision by the um, uh, Supreme court, the MAGA six uh, eradicating uh, 
affirmative action in college admissions. Uh, we talked about this a lot in the show last week, and I definitely wanted to bring you on, Adolfo, because in many ways, uh, you can speak to this with great passion and experience, considering your life uh, and the institutions, all the institutions uh, that you've been educated in, starting here in Chicago with the public schools, where you went to uh, uh, college and where you went to law school. So you've seen it all in ways that... Um, the vast majority of people don't. And the college you went to is Yale and the law school you went to is University of Chicago. You went to Curie High School and I cannot remember the name of the grammar school you went to and I apologize for Stewart, that. Stewart, William H. Stewart. Stewart. Yes, I should have known that. Yeah, this uh, is the land of Lincoln, so you know, it's it, got to be yes. someone Lincoln related. That is correct. Thank God it's not a Confederate person. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank God it's not. <laughs> we had a Douglas High School, did we? No, that was Stephen Douglas. Uh, but there's a high school with a, a Confederate. I can't remember. Although not Stephen Douglas school, defended, uh, you know, yes. on that side of the debate, he was on the other side of the debate. So, yeah, but there was a high school. I can't. I mean, not a high school, but a grammar school in Chicago that was for Confederates, named for Confederate person. I'm like, uh, yeah, come on, guys. All right. Anyway, uh, so uh, your thoughts on the affirmative action uh, decision by the Supreme? Yeah, yeah. So the decision uh, didn't surprise me, but it does. Um, I do have a lot of feelings about it because I will probably say to anyone that um, affirmative action is probably one of the the, the most pivotal pivotal um, things in my life. Like you, you mentioned, I grew up in this city, um, a child of immigrant uh, parents, uh, grew up in a working poor class. I mean, we were, we were so, everyone in America's middle class, we were so eager to be middle class that we, we would say that we were lower, lower middle class. <laughs> Even though we were just, that was just a euphemism for saying that we were working class poor, you know? And, uh, and so when I graduated from Curie High School, um, I, I, I was admitted into Yale university and, uh, and I know for a fact, I, I, I look, I was a terrific student. I had an uh, awesome GPA. I worked my ass off. I took, um, advanced placement classes in past. Um, and, uh, I was a great candidate for any school, but the truth of the matter is, is that, if you were just looking at numbers and you were looking at maybe other things of esteem that schools like you know look at, I could never compare to a student, even a mediocre student who was attending uh, the Phillips Exeter Academy or the Choate School or any of these other um, elite high schools throughout this country that are feeders into the great universities like the Ivies and the junior Ivies and the West coast schools of California, et cetera. And so there's no doubt in my mind, there is no doubt in my mind that because Yale was um, one of these schools that embraced uh, affirmative action um, going back, you know, to the sixties when they opened up the school to public school students and also to uh, uh, women, that, and that it's because of that that I I ended up at Yale, and I was lucky to end up at Yale because, although there Yale is still an elitist institution and it still has elitist um, people and 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 thoughts and culture, um, among the Ivies, it's definitely one of the more enlightened Ivies, although they still have a lot to do. Um, and I know that I would have gotten into the University of Chicago as well 
if it wasn't in part due to affirmative action, the fact that when I went there, the number of my ethnic minorities and um, black people were very, very low. My class had one African-American student. Wait, which, so, which class? At the University of Chicago Law School. Now, mind you, I think my class was something like 190 students, really small class. But to have one black student, I mean, so they, they definitely had a need to embrace affirmative action because there's there's no excuse for an elite university like that, a law school in the top three at the time, um, to only attract one black student and only a handful of Latinos and a handful of Asians. And so there's no doubt that I, a big part of why I ended up at the University of Chicago at Yale University was because of the affirmative actions that the administrations um, embraced. But say, saying that, you know, the, bis, the big misconception of affirmative action is that you're, you're replacing an entitled white person with an, uh, you know, an unprepared minority student. And that's such a crock of shit because these institutions could never take an unprepared student into their, into their schools and then hope that by somehow they would pass and thrive at their university. Uh, second, it's a crock of shit because no student is entitled to any spot at any university. I don't care if, whether you're a legacy or an athlete or if you're white and you have access to SAT prep courses, et cetera. No one, I don't care if you have straight A's, if you're a fucking genius, no one is entitled to a spot at any of these universities. First of all, there's a very limited spot in any of these universities and no one has their name already written on any of these seats. It'd be impossible. You'd have too many, first of all, you'd have too many students with similar uh, grades and whatever to to fill these spots anyway. What, every one of those are entitled to it? So get the fuck out with that whole thing. But what I will tell you is that affirmative action is, is, is a necessary um, program in this country because people like me had an opportunity to go to schools. And I know that my classmates uh, who were also there because of affirmative action have gone on to thrive in their communities. They're all leaders in their communities. And that's what's needed because there's such an imbalance. First of all, there's an economic imbalance in this country. Um, there, There is a diminishing middle class and there aren't opportunities anymore, even for white Americans, yeah. right? Because a very few elite own this country. But second of all, among ethnic minorities, uh, racial minorities, I mean, things are just as sad or sadder than they were 30 or 40 years ago. I'm a member of the legal profession. I am a Latino. I make up, I am one of only 2% of that profession nationwide. 2%. When my people make up, I don't know the exact figure, but it's got to be somewhere between 13 and 17% of this country. And it's going to get bigger. African Americans make up 1% of the legal profession. 1%. I don't know whether to fucking cry or laugh or it's just such a That's sad That's for real? Thing. 1%? 1% of the profession. Wow. And when you think about at the elite law firms, et cetera, I mean, it's just, it's, it's sad. And, um, so that's why we need, you know, these affirmative action uh, um, uh, programs. And not only that, the hypocrisy behind the Supreme court to think that this is such an, that everything in this country is based on meritocracy and, and that 
that, you know, that we're just getting a free hand, et cetera. It's bullshit. I was just telling you before the show, the biggest affirmative action program in this country's history was the GI Bill after World War II that, mind you, excluded a lot of African-Americans who served in that war and other minorities, Latinos who bravely fought and died in this country, and they're, they're the ones who came back couldn't go to school on a GI plan, couldn't get a, a loan to buy a house. It was the biggest uh, 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 you know, economic changing program in this country. It developed uh, generational wealth for so many white Americans. And here's the Supreme Court saying that not only people, people who benefited from even before that, from all the slavery, the economy of the slavery years, the economy of the Jim Crow years, built all that generational wealth. And then also people who are coming back from the war. It's only these white people who are, who are, who are, you know, benefiting from it. And, and they're going to tell, they're going to, they're going to tell us that we can't get like a helping hand to kind of equalize all of the generational um, harm that happened to us. It's incredible. Uh, All right. So much to follow up on what you said. Uh, we're not going to talk about the strike, the actor strike right now, but the right actor writer strike to me uh, is symbolic of a larger attempt to essentially destroy the middle class in Chicago. And this is upper middle class. So, you know, I'm not talking about the Tom Cruises of the world are fabulously wealthy. I'm talking about working actors uh, who are. Wealthier than you or me, Adolfo? Well, I don't know how your law passed. Maybe they're wealthier than me, but wealthier than um, the average person in Chicago. But they're still, they're not fabulously wealthy. They don't have legacy wealth. They don't have the ability uh, to walk away from it all. I just believe it's just part of a larger effort. I've been watching it systematically for the last, this entire century. It's essentially destroying the middle class and a pushback by unions to defy that which is really at the heart of this struggle uh, with the actors is a resistance to it. So, uh, and I guess that's at, what's at play in the affirmative action argument, because the notion is you work hard, you succeed, you get entree to Yale, uh, access to the University of Chicago, and that's your ticket. You follow what I'm saying? That's what's going to get you ahead. Because once you graduated from there, you're going to be able to move on uh, and you will become part of the upper middle class. So it's such a valuable. Right. And, and you're empowering. Look, all these people who have benefited over the last 30, 40 years through affirmative action programs have done good for society. They go back and they give back overwhelmingly to their communities. They become leaders, whether they do things at the top echelon or whether they do things at the community level. I mean, there's studies about this. They give back. I mean, society is so much better off. It's a win-win for society to have these kind of programs. And for, you know, for the Supreme Court to say that, you know, that this is wrong, it's just so hypocritical. So let me ask you this. I don't know if I've ever asked you, did Yale openly recruit you? How did Yale find no, Yale, actually, Yale did not find me. I, um, I found them. I'm, I, I always, I always wanted to go. I always had this thought of going somewhere like a Yale or a Harvard because of where they sat in, you know, in 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 our culture, in our history. 
Um, but no, they, they, they didn't find me. So it, they didn't seek me affirmatively that way, but the, the, Affirmative action as a program was something that Yale, among the Ivies, uh, was was known for. You know, as a university that embraced it. Among you know, there were other Ivies that didn't. You know, like Princeton for a while was not. For example, they weren't financial need blind. For example, and that so if they accepted you, they looked at your finances, and if you couldn't afford to go there, you just couldn't go so yeah exactly whereas places like Yale not only like um you know used race and background as a factor um, in which they used to make a decision whether or not to accept you just like they did if you were a legacy just like they did if you were an athlete um just like they did if 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 uh you know you had certain community service or whatever they used it as a factor and to look at whether this individual who was who is very well qualified could not only survive and thrive at the university in the classroom, mm -hmm. but then what would they add outside of the classroom? How would they make their um, their fellow students better members of society to 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 consider different points of view and then to go on there because places like this, what they do, the difference between the elite schools and the other schools is not necessarily that they one prepares you to be a better engineer than the other they don't what they do is that at the elite schools they afford you not only networking that you'll have from there on yeah. to the future but they also places like yale they pride themselves in saying that when you go to a place like that they are they are forging a leader they are forging a person who's going to go on and lead in their community at all sorts of levels. And that's the difference between the universities. Well, I uh, I just think of all the uh, MAGA politicians these days who have graduated from Yale or Harvard, and I think they're really failing in that aspect, uh, <laughs> at, least, at least when it comes uh, to MAGA. But uh, right. I, I, uh, I've said this before, I'll, I'll close this segment of the conversation uh, with this now. Uh, I believe that this uh, Supreme Court decision is part of a larger effort to gaslight. Well, the, larger, the larger effort, Ben, in my opinion, is yeah. that we are at a tipping point in our society. Mm -hmm. I was saying the demographics since I was in college, when I was in college taking political science classes, professor was saying, look, the aging of America, this white uh, America is aging we're going to need younger people to be part of the labor force. Where are you going to get those people? You're going yeah. to get them from Latin America and other places where you have people who are hungry to work and to come to America. And in, in, in with that supply and demand need, natural need, those demographics are going to lead to a day when America will become minority majority. And under a minority majority America, the old rules, the old privileges that people had with a majority white America are going to change. And this is the last efforts of an entitled white America to keep things the good old way. That's why they throw back to the make America great. America great for whom? Yeah. Right? I mean, America great for, for, for the people who've been in power forever. And so this is this is... This is a concerted effort to infiltrate the different uh, you know, branches of government 
to do what they can to, if not end this change, to at least put the brakes on it, mitigate it, make it hard to unravel. Because one day this country is really going to be brown and it's really going to be a country where there are going to be people with marriages of different, you know, far more marriages are going to be among people of different races and different cultures and different religions. And it's going to be a more pluralistic society. And white America is afraid of that because whether or not you as a white American believe that you're racist or not. What you definitely know inside, deep inside of you is that being white is the greatest thing to be in America because it entitles you to so many things that others are not. Whether you want them to be entitled to or not, you benefit from just the fact that you have white skin. You walk into a bank and your chances of getting a loan are far more higher. Just based on that fact alone, you walk into a doctor's office and the and the chances of a doctor running different tests on you and getting the right diagnosis on you are far more higher just because you're white. And we could go on to every facet. You could be a professional baseball player in baseball and because you're or in the NBA and you might be a good player and shoot a lot of threes, but because you're white, you actually have a better chance of making the team than a black player. So whatever facet of society you're talking about, the fact that you're white in America automatically, whether you want to or not, automatically gives you a leg up and that's something hard to give up. I don't blame them. I don't blame white America be afraid, but because that's a powerful thing, right? I mean, if you, if, but things, things have to change. And this is, this is like, these are the last efforts, you know, because 20 years from now, 30 years from now, America is going to look very different. Well, we'll see what the, uh, how the universities respond to this. Uh, so will they continue with efforts to have a, a more diverse student body, which, as you pointed out, have largely failed? Uh, or will they just say, ah, to hell with it, just go back to the way it was? Uh, we shall see. Uh, but I, I got to uh, I was thinking about you when you were on that riff, because I remember when Harold got elected. Uh, he, there was just a palpable fear among white people in Chicago that he was essentially going to use his powers to do to white people <laughs> what white people right, were doing right. to black well, people. That's for a perfect all. example. Of, that's a perfect example of the yeah. manifestation of this fear that comes out. Look at just this last election, like you were saying, the liberals <laughs> in, uh, in the Lakeview neighborhoods, etc. They voted for the MAGA, the MAGA guy. Why did they vote for them? Uh, if these are allegedly woke people who are highly educated and conscious and, you know, people who believe in plurality and equality and egalitarianism, they did it because there's an inner fear that kicks in because yeah. they know they're going to lose something. And that fear of losing something just kicks in automatically. And then it, you have this very so-called woke white person voting for a MAGA guy. I actually think it's a different phenomenon uh, with Chicagoans. Uh, the uh, Northsiders who voted for Vallis. Um, uh, I think it was fear. And um, I think it was absolute fear. And uh, that's fear is a huge motivating factor. Uh, I don't even think these like people are like 
just put aside the concept woke, whatever it means. Just take but them fear, out of the fear, fear of fear of losing power or fear that things are going to go down. The fear of crime. Yeah. Fear of black okay. people. Fear black people vote for the white guy. That is so basic well, to Chicago and, politics. And that's, and that's, I think that's part of what I'm saying, though. I mean, it's an essential part of losing power, right? You're afraid of these black people. They're going to run amok, you know, whether in the streets or in City Hall on the fifth floor or whatever, right? So I think it's kind of part of the same thing. And I just, and then now, like, there's, like, coming to terms with Brandon Johnson. I'm watching that happening. Uh, I, I don't know. He's not as bad as I thought he would be. Oh, <laughs> I mean, so, shit, look, I don't look think at- it, I, I just don't think it's fear. I understand the theory you're laying out. Uh, shout out Monroe Anderson, the regular guest on Wednesday. It's one of Monroe's favorite uh, theory, uh, theories as to what motivates MAGA uh, and what motivated people to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. I just think uh, that it's a little more specific it, with the Lakeford liberals uh, who I don't even know if they're liberal anymore, but right. uh, they're liberal on social issues anyway. Well, look, and, white, white, segments of white America couldn't even accept Barack Obama, who is white also. He has, you know, he has a white mother. I mean, they couldn't even accept that. But I guess- There were seg- segments, yeah. But they overall loved him. Like, yeah, voted for Vallis. <laughs> oh, my God. Arnie Duncan voted for Vallis. Let's just pause and think about that. Arnie Duncan- uh, he, the uh, secretary of education for Barack Obama. I'm not going to do my Barack Obama invitation. Good friend of Barack Obama plays basketball with Barack Obama voted for Paul Vallis. By the way, he had the, uh, the Ben Adolfo reason for voting for Vallis. So you and I said we would take Larry Snelling, uh, who is beloved by the rank and file of the Chicago police department uh, to be the head of the police department for this. Arnie Duncan's, he was trying to figure out a reason, I guess, to justify voting for this lunatic. Uh, <laughs> and, well, we need a man who could uh, interact with the rank and file of the police department to uh, when we move to the next phase of what, not just routinely arresting black people all the time, just like sweeping them up and throw them into jail to deal with crime. So we're going to need someone who could appeal to uh the rank and file. That was his argument for voting for the lunatic. So anyway, I just had to go there. All right, let's move on to the next topic, which is uh, the topic of the week of the Ben Jarofsky show. I've been talking obsessively about it, and we'll do a full, another full interview with it with Rick Callender of the Sun-Times. Obviously, we're going to get into that. And that is the Northwestern University hazing scandal. Uh, and yesterday, by the way, I was walking down the street deep in thought. Uh, I think I, I was thinking about the... Um, <laughs> I was thinking about Jackie Brown. I was, I think I was walking down the street thinking about Jackie Brown, and I bumped into uh, Stephen, a uh, a listener to this show, dear friend of the show. Shout out, Stephen! And uh, I said, Stephen, this, this, this is how my mind works, Adolfo. Everybody I meet, everybody I meet, waitresses in cafes. What do you think about the Northwestern University scan? He had a great response. And he was like, oh, that's white people acting crazy. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of sums it all up, man. It's some weird white people thing. But, man, it's it's just, wow, it's on so many levels. But the part right, well, that, 
I, I yeah, wanted you to focus on, I sent you the article. I sent it to Ramana. It's the part of the scandal that gets overlooked. Everybody talks about the hazing aspect of because they're guys are all into the sexual innuendo. Don't pretend you're not okay. Chicagoan, you're all kind of weird in that regard. Anyway, uh, the, the racial angle is, was, uh, analyzed in a second uh, article that's been largely overlooked uh, by three Northwestern uh, daily uh, journalists. And I sent it to Adolfo. He dutifully read it. Uh, And at the heart of it is some accusations uh, made by a a former player in the team uh, who's Hispanic. And he gives his name. He's not hiding or anything. Puts his name out there. I give this guy a lot of credit, man. He put it all out in the line. And I go, Adolfo, you and I have to talk about this. We've had so many conversations about this at White Sox games while we're sitting up there <laughs> watching the White Sox lose another game uh, and another player get injured because you look at them and they get injured. Uh, so, Adolfo, take the deep dive on the accusations and what they mean about Hispanics, Blacks, Whites, and uh, elite institutions like Northwestern. Go. So I think it, the thing that stands out the most to me is that this is just like a different side of the of the affirmative action point. And it just, it really, you know, puts it, it poignantly reminds you about how damned we are if we do and damned we are if we don't. On the one hand, on affirmative action, it's this, uh, you know, these people who are trying to keep minorities from going to universities, whether it's elite universities or state schools or whatever. So they're trying to keep us out. They're trying to keep us uneducated. They're trying to keep us from uh, an institution that is known for, you know, helping you move up the social ladder. The Northwestern controversy reminds us that when they do accept you at the university level, because you have a skill that they want to exploit and make money out of, and at a particular place like Northwestern, which is very elite, like the Ivies, et cetera, is that even then there's a cost. Even then we lose because a kid like this guy who, you know, who whistleblowed uh, on the on what was happening uh, during the Fitzgerald um, program, you know, he's probably a kid who initially felt like, wow, I'm being accepted on this team, on this campus and probably because of our own uh, you know, difficulties with race and color in Latin America, he, he might have felt like, wow, I'm, I'm being accepted by the white people, by the white guys. But not quite. It comes at a cost because the only way they will accept you, when they need you, they need to exploit your talents, right? So there should be an equal quid pro quo. You come here as a student athlete, you you get tuition waived or whatever, and you get an education, and in exchange, we get your talents, right? But it can't be that easy. What this kid's story says is that even when they do that and they actually invite us into the universities, they have to denigrate us. They have to make us that the only way you're going to be a part of this and feel that you're part of this white team, this wildcat team, this American style team is by cutting your dreads and emblazing on your head, Cinco de Mayo of your Latino and bearing, uh, you know, having to bear jokes about how you know you must know how to mow a lawn or clean a fucking house because your parents are probably domestics or lawnmowers, you know, lawn caretakers. 
etc. All the stereotypes. If you're a black student, you have to lay on your stomach and eat fucking watermelon with your with, with your face because it's not good enough that there's a basic quid pro quo. We get your talent. You get to come to school here. You get to be accepted by us. No, it comes at a fucking price. Even then we lose. We lose because this kid, well, he's not a kid anymore. He's 10 years out and he's traumatized. He has post-traumatic uh, disorder from the abuse, the hazing that he went through. Because here he is thinking that he's going to be accepted at this elite school, going to play for them, going to be accepted on this team. And it's not a full acceptance. It's actually, it's actually you're the butt of the joke. We're only exploiting you. And the only way we can rationalize you being here is by making you think that you're part of us, but you're really not because we're constantly reminding you what, what shitty, how shitty we think of your culture, how shitty we think of 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 any attempt for you to express yourself with your dreads or or in any other manner, uh, your culture because you have to conform to us and not only conform to us but then be humiliated by being through this hazing to kind of to 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 you know put it in instill it in you that that you know you come from a less superior culture than ours and we have a right to make fun of it and joke about it and so we. They're trying to keep us out. And when they allow us to come in, they can't just do it on a fair quid pro quo basis. They still have to fucking denigrate us because it's not good enough for us to be there uh, so they could exploit our talents. It, they still have to fucking let us know that they're better than us. And it's such a shitty thing. Wow, that was a great riff, man. That really sums it up. Uh, yeah. So, have you experienced stuff like that in your professional career when you uh, go into a workplace that are predominantly white? I mean, some, some forms of it, obviously not the extreme hazing that these, I mean, there's no way I would have let anybody fucking do that shit to me. I would have been like, fuck that. <laughs> it would have been an ass whooping that day. They might've whooped my ass, but I would have taken like three or four of them with me, man. Fuck that. Um, but but yeah, I mean, there there is these subtle aggressions and there's these jokes and come on, man, come on. We're just joking. We're just joking, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, that, that deal with stereotypes and, oh, I bet Adolfo was good at that because, you know, the, the because of a stereotype or whatever. And it's always, you know, like in this form of like, come on, don't you have a sense of humor? We're just fucking with you or whatever. Yeah, but I'm not telling these dudes to, you know, exploiting fucking uh stereotypes about the irish or the polish or the fuck you know germans or whatever it's just like what the fuck dude yeah. so there even at my level there are definitely um these moments these uh aggressions that, are, that go by there's nothing as extreme as the hazing that these fucking poor guys had to go through um Aside from all the sexual shit, too, the oh my god, all the, 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 the that everyone wants to talk about, but um, but yeah, it's 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 shitty because it's a it's a way of gaslighting you, you know, it's a way of gaslighting you and be, into believing that you're fucking less, yeah. you know, that that gaslighting you because they're making you feel like you're part of the team, you're part of this wildcat way, blah blah blah, but you got to eat that watermelon off the fucking ground, yeah. So that's part of the ritual to for us to accept you, you know, and so it you get gaslit into believing that you're one of us, uh, 
And yet you're not because at the same time, while they're making you believe that you're one of us, what they're actually doing is they're making fun of you. Yeah. And they're making you turn against yourself, denigrate your own self and believe, and then eventually believe when they gaslight you fully, believe that you're just like a piece of shit that is lucky to be there and you're inferior to all these other guys. And so it's, so it's, it's like, so again, they don't want us there, but when they do want us, it can't just be on equal fucking terms. They have to still tell you that you're fucking less, (laughs) you know, it's so shitty. It's such you, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Uh, I can't, uh, there's no point in reset. That's such a great riff, man. That was well done young man. Uh, and, uh, and I'll just close this segment, the Northwestern segment that remind everybody out there on top of everything else, the team sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I'm just so into this on so many levels, but the perverse love that Northwestern alums have for Pat Fitzgerald, the former coach, like this is like a sad moment in their lives. I'm like, guys, his team was one in 11 last year. You know, that'd be like, like Bulls fans right now want Billy Donovan fired. They were 500. (laughs) This guy was one 11 and they're, was one of us he was a wildcat <laughs> it's weird man I, I i don't get it you know but i'm an outsider i'm a north and the funny thing is i'm a northwestern fan but i was a northwestern fan because i'm a townie i grew up in Evans. <laughs> here's the whole team i root for them you know it's it's different than being like part of it you know what i'm saying right. uh all right uh we'll close we we'll, was we talked yeah i was close briefly uh this uh i have this habit when I see an article in the newspaper, uh, reminds me of somebody. I uh, send it to that person. Do this all the time, uh, and um, so uh, because uh, Adolfo is a graduate of Yale, I sent him the obituary from the New York Times of Benno Schmidt, who died. He was former president of Yale. Interesting character. Uh, it got a significant write up in the New York Times. Probably completely unknown to ninety nine point nine percent of Chicagoans because there is no Chicago tie uh, that you could even remotely link him to uh, this uh, fair city. He's a New York, New Haven guy through and through. Uh, I found him interesting as a character, uh, Adolfo, because he came from wealth, New York City, like generational wealth, like almost go back to the Pilgrims type of wealth that you're really conscious of if you grow up in the East from Rhode Island. So very conscious of like, when you're growing up in Rhode Island, you're like, who are the 13? I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. They like know the 13 colonies. Here in, in Illinois, like, what? 13 colonies? Yeah, if you grow up in Rhode Island, you know there's 13 colonies. And you know, like, the like the Jews were accepted in Newport. There's like one, one, one city in uh, all of the whole freaking 13 colonies. Yeah, Newport. The Jewish people could go to Rhode Island because of Roger Woods. These are the kinds of things that you're taught. When you're like growing up on the East Coast. And I know you know this stuff, Adolfo, because you went to Yale and then you learned this stuff. So this dude comes from that deep, that <laughs> we were with this country, you know, at the outset. Uh, the white people with the country, of course, as opposed All to right. black people. Let's just get that clear. Uh, and then he went on. He, he became president of Yale. He was uh, head of the law school. Raised was great at raising money. Uh, and then he went into the private school business trying to build up 
he was like the forerunner of charter schools. That didn't work. Private, it was going to be private schools with public money. Didn't work. Uh, to me, that's the part of the legacy that's, uh, you kind of eroded the whole concept of public education when you went into that venture. Uh, and it failed, but in many ways, uh, it lives on with the charter school movement which is also an anti-union movement and an anti-middle class union movement, but we'll put that to the side. Uh, so it's kind of a, what do I think about it? Uh, an interesting American story, I guess, with a mixed legacy, in, in my humble opinion, when I look right. at life. A here. mixed legacy. And I think it lends itself to the themes today um, because of Benno's background of the generational New York high society background and kind of, so when I got to Yale, I got to Yale the the semester before Benno suddenly quit Yale and he went off to do this private uh, charter school thing, the Edison program in New York City that, like you said, was a failure, but was the start of this whole charter school movement. And so I didn't know much about Benno uh, except that he had quit on Yale. He had left students never really took fully to him. The faculty certainly didn't because he did a lot of reorganizational structural changes to it. The administration certainly loved them. Uh, and the, 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 the boards that govern uh, Yale because, you know, he's waspy old Yale. I mean, he's like the, the epitome of what a Yale man, you know, used to be. Right. So, uh, so when I got there, he had just left. We, I had an interim. The first year, I had an interim president, and then after that, was the beginning of uh, the president that probably has the the biggest legacy at Yale, President Levin, um, who made transformative changes at Yale. And uh, so, Benno was kind of like a odd person. I kind of later knew him only because he appeared in a couple of Woody Allen movies, and I was a Woody Allen movie fan. And uh, so he had little roles and that's because of his New York society whole thing that he was able to do that. Um, but it's, it's interesting that uh, to me that uh, you know, that, that he won uh, was at the forefront of this charter school movement. And, and particularly because see, he, he was preceded by two very popular uh, um, presidents at Yale Ingman Brewster, right, who was like during the 60s, uh, during a very volatile time in America, was a pretty enlightened president. You know, he, he and he's the one who forged all the changes at Yale that brought in women, brought in public school students, brought in more ethnic minorities, saw the turmoil of the Black Panther trials in New Haven, etc. And then uh, uh, Giamatti who we know as the former baseball commissioner, the guy who banned Pete Rose from baseball, mm -hmm. but um, he was very popular. And um, Bart Giamatti, father of Paul Giamatti, the actor in that show that everybody watches from HBO. I don't know what it, it's a session or whatever. I think no, 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 it's, it's from the other show on H on Showtime. I forget. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so, but those people were beloved by the faculty and the students. And then you come this old, you know, very erudite, old money, old blue guy who was only there for a very small time. They lavished him for bringing in a lot of money and doubling the, the endowment and then maybe making structural changes that were needed at the time. I don't know enough about that to, you know, to, 
to know that's something that he should be lauded for or not. But it's interesting that this figure from the old societal wealth is the one who was the, you know, it was involved in education, but again, did it help the people that purported that it was going to help, right? This whole charter school movement, which is supposed to be like egalitarian, supposedly, and it's supposed to like help raise racial minorities up the social ladder, et cetera, actually probably did the opposite, especially here in Chicago and Philadelphia and different areas. So the legacy, I would say, is very mixed at best, if not, I don't know, tainted by by some of this, but, you know, but because he comes from the old money world or whatever, the New York Times, you know, of course, gives them a very, very rosy, very rosy obit. And again, I'm not saying that everything he did was bad. And he was definitely a constitutional scholar uh, when he was at Columbia Law School and et cetera. But it's just interesting to note that when he was at Yale, he was not popular with the students and the administration, um, unlike his predecessors, and and when he left and he tried and, and he remained in the educational institution of education in America, that his efforts were mixed at best and maybe started this whole charter school uh, trend that has been really bad for America. I uh, agree with you about the charter school trend that's uh, bad for America. And I'll close by just saying this this is why i think it's bad for america because the concept of a charter school uh is a school that allows uh, the people who run it uh, to pay its teachers less than the going rate and i'm going to bring it all back to the actor strike you want to destroy the middle class in chicago you want to destroy the middle class in america you want to take that ladder to the top and cut it off you know you want to have even more inequity i i do not think you can take a look uh, at charter schools and divorce them from the role they have in uh, how much teachers get uh, receive a salary and benefits and whether this could become a job that could become a career, a lifelong job that would enable a teacher to raise a freaking family and have a middle class existence like we're supposed to have in this country. If you turn it into like missionary work where they're dedicating their life uh, and then they're not even going to have the benefits when it's all over, uh, like a serviceman would have. You know, you have military benefits and uh, uh, pensions, etc. I, I just think ultimately you're doing you're hurting society. That's my take on and, it. And not only and not only that, I'll just add one thing. But at the same time, these charter schools go in, use our tax money to replace public schools in in uh, neighborhoods and areas that are, you know. Um, are are suffering and they take those students and they purport that they're going to raise them up and produce a hundred percent graduates that go to college, et cetera, except that they fudge numbers yeah. because they have so much yeah. discretion over who they take or whatever is they're kicking the bad kids that they will not take the time and patience to educate. They throw them back out into the system and then they only take the better ones and then claim that their numbers are perfect and that they're the, the they're the premier example of what education should be like because they'll take poor students from these neighborhoods and then you know 
help them go to colleges, et cetera. When the, when you start looking behind those numbers, you'll see that they actually shove a lot of kids back into the system. Don't give a fuck about them. They only give a, about, a fuck about their numbers and about the perceived changes that they're making. When in fact, they're not only fucking the teachers, but they're also fucking the students. Not literally in that last sentence. I think he was. No, not, 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 yeah, not okay. literally. Yes. Uh, all right. So anyway, uh, we've run out of time. Adolfo Mondragon, thank you very much. Uh, this is a conversation that will be continued at some White Sox game uh, further down the road. And then uh, when I bring you back on the show, cause it's always a blast talking to you. All right. Sounds good, man. Good to be here. Again. All right. I also want to thank producer Chris. Outstanding job as always. Producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Ben and J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram, at Benny J Show, and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show podcast on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.